Everybody, this is Freddie Cohen of ESPN Radio. When I'm not talking about breaking news or breaking news on ESPN Radio, I'm always a fan and listen to the Detroit Sports Podcast, and so should you. All I want to know is you got your popcorn ready. Do you got your popcorn ready? DetroitSportsPodcast.com presents to you the one-on-one podcast interview with John the Doc Macaroon. Joining me today in studio, kind enough to give us give us his time, came into the studio to chat with the Doc, Dan Miller from Fox 2, sports anchor, sports director. You hear him as the radio play-by-play voice of your Detroit Lions can be heard on 97.1 FM, the ticket, on Mondays after tough losses or after great wins on the Monday Lions Review Show. Dan Miller joins me on the one-on-one podcast. Dan, thank you so much for joining. I'm so looking forward to this chat. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's uh, good to be here. Your setup is uh, very elaborate. I'm impressed. As I told you, I know nothing about anything technical, but this it looks great. Yeah, you know, I got into podcasting about a couple of years ago, and I really believe it's the future of radio mm-hmm. because, you know, a lot of people can get into it. Anybody yeah. can get into it. Are you, by chance, into podcasts? Do you listen to anything like, th- like this, on a, uh, whether it be entertainment or sports-related? Yeah, you know what? I, I love anything on demand because I, I am constantly, like a lot of people, I don't necessarily have the time to sit down and listen to something when it's happening. I'm a huge Stern fan, so... I will listen to his on-demand stuff on Sirius, and and it gets me through, you know, if I have to go through a cardio session or something at the gym, I know if I put on a Howard interview, it's going to be about an hour, and then he's going to say, look, you know, we've been talking for an hour now, you've said it all, and I know at that point I can quit. So, yeah, I I love anything that's on-demand, TV, radio, stuff like that, and it helps me get through everything. So you're right. I, I think it has a big part in the media today and what everybody does. Now, the reason why I started this podcast was I was very fascinated to get to chat with people who are in the sports business, who follow sports, who are passionate about sports. So I'm just curious, how did you get involved in sports as a kid, and uh, what teams did you follow growing up? You know, I think just being a kid who loved sports, I lived in a great neighborhood growing up. I grew up in uh, mostly in Virginia, outside of D.C., born in D.C., lived in Maryland, then grew up in Virginia. And I had a neighborhood that was just full of kids, and we just played year round. I mean, we were playing football, basketball, baseball, whatever it was, ton of wiffle ball. I was just into it. And that grew into being the kid who waited for the paper to get there in the morning, the Washington Post, waited for the paper to get there in the afternoon, the Washington Star, and just digging right in the sports page and reading anything I could. And, and, you know, although obviously your choices were very limited back then, watching anything I could, watching the guys that did sports on TV. And I just, I, I couldn't get enough of it. I didn't read many books as a kid, but any book I did read had something to do with sports. So you played, you said you played basketball, football, some baseball. What was your favorite sport? What, what, what got you excited to play every day in the summer months? You know, we played, we played a ton of wiffle ball. I mean, we had a great field that was lit and we, we could play at night and we had the fence and we had everything. And whenever, you know, we, 
talk to guys from back then. I mean, we could still bring up memories of wiffle ball and home run championships and things like that. But I mean, I, I played basketball most of my life and played basketball in high school. So that was probably the one that I paid most attention to. But, you know, it, it was very clear that that was not going to be my path into sports was any sort of playing. If I was going to do anything, it was going to be writing, it was going to be talking, it was going to be something. But I, I love playing it. It was a big part of my life. But, uh, you know, clearly that was not going to be the definition of my life in sports in terms of my being able to play the game. Gotcha. I understand. So then when about do you know, do you start thinking, you know what, I think I want to work in sports as a career? I, I think probably when I was probably nine, 10, something like that. I mean, I used to watch a guy by the name of Warner Wolf in Washington, DC, who was the sportscaster there. And they had a, an amazing show that was on Monday nights, which was must see TV um, called Redskin sidelines. I used to watch him do the sports. I'd watch him do that show. I, I never missed it. And, and I would watch him do it. And then I would, you know, make notes and then I would try to do it. And I, I would, uh, I was just really taken by it from the moment I saw somebody that had the ability to sit there and, and talk about sports or, you know, uh, again, we didn't have a ton of games that were on back then. I, I don't know what you get from the, if, if you had a bullet schedule that came out, maybe it was 25 games were on TV or something like that. I would watch them all I could, but I, I do remember very early being eight, nine, ten years old, watching sportscasts on TV and just knowing that's what I wanted to do. So then, uh, do you take uh, broadcasting in college? You study communication. I did, what did yeah. you, you study in college? I studied uh, communications, radio, and television at George Mason University, and it was, you know, it was, it was a department that was really just starting, so there wasn't a ton of guidance at that point. I mean, it was probably a degree more in name than it was in being able to say, oh, I learned X, Y, and Z there. I did have one great professor that had been in the business, and she was a real big help to me. But I, I think more than anything else, I was lucky enough to kind of find a job in the business my senior year of high school through a friend, which really was my, opened all the doors for me and gave me practical experience much more than anything that I learned in college. I think if I went back there now, judging by their communications department, uh, I, it would be a much better experience than it was then. Because again, they were just getting started. And, and most of the classes were um, not really hands-on. There were more theory and things like that. And I think hands-on is, is, is so important when you're talking about somebody's education in this business. When I was doing a little bit of research, I read that, uh, and what I like about people is people who have chutzpah, people that will you know, do whatever it takes to work hard, succeed, and really meet their goals. So I was reading and telling me this is true. You were, um, after high school, were at uh, WJLA, WTEM, and they had asked you, you know, could you edit audio? And you had kind of maybe, maybe told a little white no, I lie. Said, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I no, I was, that was, that was my senior year of high school. I had a, um, a teacher and my baseball coach was a guy by the name of John Castleberry, who also there's, you know, him, three other brothers. They're like my second family. His parents are like you know, like family to me, and I've known them forever. And John was working at uh, Mutual Radio, which was a radio network. And a lot of people might remember Larry King's overnight radio show. That's That was on Mutual. And, you know, they did, it's not as much of it anymore, but they did the top of the hour news and the bottom of the hour news, and they did sports casts. Well, the sports department would hire out college kids to come in and produce those and, and edit the tapes and put them together for the anchor on the weekends. And there was an opening, and he said, go interview for it. He goes, I'll tell you right now, they're going to ask you if you can edit tape, just say yes. We all say yes. And then we go in and we learn how to do it. So I went in and sure enough, they asked me and sure enough, I said yes. And sure enough, I learned how to do it. And I stayed there for 11 years. So 
Uh, I, w- I wasn't 100% truthful, but uh, they told me to lie. So I did lie. And, and it was one of those things where, um, you know, most people that probably walked in that door didn't know a lot about how to do it, but it was a skill that you could pick up and, and you had a lot of backup in that job. It wasn't like they threw you out there and you had to swim right away. So it was, uh, and, and it was just an unbelievable stroke of luck in my career that I was able to get that because the hardest thing to do is to find that first job. And that first job just kind of opened itself up for me. And I was able to really spread my wings from there. And, and I can't say enough about the 11 years that I spent there. Yeah. And now we're talking, remember, this is around early 90s, correct? This is 1981. 1981. Yeah. Okay. Early so the, 80s. See, this is where there are very few 24-hour around the clock sports. So it's none. Very few, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And and so now you're working in radio doing sports around the time of the early 90s um here in Detroit, you know, WDFN came on mm-hmm. around the clock and more and more of sports radio kind of picked up around the early 90s. Around that time, were you like this is a medium that uh, you know, taking phone calls, breaking down games. What was your early experiences looking back at early sports talk radio? Well, I remember being in New York um to, I forget why I was there, maybe the kickoff classic or something like that. I used to produce college football games as part of my job. And I remember, it, this is probably late 80s, I think, turning on the radio and hearing w, WFAN. And right. they were the first ones for the most part. And I think WIP in Philadelphia came in not long after that, but just listening to them and just how fascinated I was by it, that these people would sit and talk about sports all day and all night. And it was, you know, it was definitely intoxicating. You could sit there and just listen to it over and over. And, you know, I I think there was a part of me that thought that was pretty cool. And I did end up getting into sports radio ultimately. But I I think in the back of my mind, I knew I always wanted to do TV. I've been in radio one way or the other, been in this business for 34 years, probably most, if not all of the 34 years. It's still, I think, a great medium, but I, you know, TV was always in the back of my mind as something I wanted to do. I just couldn't find a job was the the biggest problem. So um, I was working in radio and and ultimately I moved over to sports talk radio. And uh, I think the entire time I did it, I always had my eye on TV, but it was also a very big part of, of whatever I've become. That was a big part of it. Okay. Do you recall your first TV gig and how you kind of oh, got God. it and how excited you were? Just like, you know what? This is what I've been working for. I finally got a chance <laughs> to apply and uh, do something that I've, I've always wanted to do. Yeah, like it was yesterday. I, um, I, I had gotten, w- when I moved from Mutual in 1992 to WTEM, which was the all-sports radio station in Washington, um, I went as the overnight host and I took a significant pay cut to do it. Uh, I was doing sports casts for mutual slash NBC. And I just kind of thought to myself, you know what? I, I can sit in this room and do these sports casts probably for the next 30 years, although that probably wouldn't happen for the next 30 years. But I feel like there's more out there for me. So uh, uh, somebody that I used to work with had gone over to WTEM and was the program director there. And we started talking. He goes, I got an opening for an overnight host, which was midnight till 6 a.m., maybe midnight till 5.30, something like that. They got foggy after a while. But I, I started I went over there, took a, a significant pay cut. My, thankfully, my wife had a good job, so it was something I was able to do. And I went over in August, and in September, their Redskins beat reporter um, moved on to a different job. They came to me, and they said, we want you to be the Redskins beat reporter. I said, I want to do that. I said, I want to stay doing a talk show. That's why I came here. And they said, okay, take 24 hours and think about it. So I said, okay. Came back 24 hours later. I said, I don't want to do it. I want to do a talk show, which is what I signed up to do. Cause I kind of said, all right, if I can't be in TV, maybe I'll be the next Larry King. So 
I, I basically, they said to me, well, that's great. You're going to be the Redskins beat reporter. So I ended up doing that. And it was one of the best things that ever happened to me because it allowed me to get to meet a lot of people. I was at practice every day. I met all the TV guys, met the newspaper guys, learned a lot from them. Amazing people, Richard Justice, David Aldridge, guys like that. I learned so much from, and I ultimately started getting TV little hits here and there, like we're going to talk about the Redskins today. Here's Redskins beat reporter from WTEM, Dan Miller. So those things kind of got me in the door a little bit. And then I got a call one day. This is like 1994. I get a, came into the office. It's week two of the season, I think. And I get a call from a guy named Duffy Dyer. It was on my uh, voicemail. And it wasn't the Duffy Dyer that used to play for the Mets and Pirates. It was Duffy Dyer, who was the vice president of programming for Channel 5 in Washington. And I'm like, who is this? I have no idea where this call is coming from. He goes, call me. He goes, look. I called him and he said, we have an opening for a Redskins reporter for our Redskins pregame show. We need to fill it now. Because I think the guy that they had had lasted one week. It didn't work out. He was gone. They needed somebody. So I went and met him for lunch the next day. So I met him and I get, look, I'm not ready for this job is the truth. I don't have the experience for this job at this point. So I'm kind of trying to sell myself. He's asking me questions about experience and stuff like that. And I, I think it was going okay, but I still in the back of my mind was thinking they're going to find somebody, but they didn't have any time. So we're getting up to leave. And I just said, look, I know on paper, I may not look like the guy, but I can do this job. And he kind of shook his head and said, okay, thank you. Shook my hand. And I figured that was it. Well, he called me the next day and offered me the job. So then I had to go back to the radio station and this is a long way of getting to my first TV thing, but mm-hmm. went back to the radio station. I said, look, cause I was doing Redskins post game at the time and pregame. So this would have taken me out of that. So I said, I have this opportunity to go do this TV gig. You know, what do you think? And they said, give us a couple hours and come back and talk to us. So I went back in and talked to him and he said, we're not going to let you do it. And at that point, I'm just like, I see my life flashing before my eyes and it's just, there's no way that this is happening. This is, this is the break I've wanted. And so at that moment, our general manager walked in and I was talking to the program director at the time, our general manager walked in, a guy by the name of, of Bennett Zier. And he says, guys, look, I don't want to interrupt. And I'm thinking, you just get out of here. I'm, <laughs> I'm pleading for my life here. And he walks in and he says, Hey, I just wanted to tell you, we just sent out a direct mail to people, 10,000 of them to tell them about the radio station. I think this is going to be great for publicity and stuff like that. And I'm like, okay leave. So wheels start turning. And I think to myself, look, they've already said they're going to second line me WTEM Redskins beat reporter. So I looked at him and I said, Doug, you just got excited about 10,000 people. I said, there's going to be a lot more people than that watching me do this Redskin thing. And it's free publicity for you. He starts thinking and he says, hmm. He goes, let me get back to you. So an hour later, they said, you can do it. Fast forward that weekend. Philadelphia, night game, Redskins-Eagles. Our pregame show aired at 11 o'clock that morning. It was 11 to 12. So I'm scared to death. The whole previous night, all I'm doing is memorizing every single word I have to say. So my, my legs are shaking, I'm sweating, I'm just dying. And I walk in and we were shooting it by an indoor pool. We did it at the team hotel. We did it at an indoor pool. And I remember I walk in and the best thing that I'd ever seen in my life was a chair which meant I got to sit while I did this. So I'm sitting, getting wired up, mic'd up, everything. And somebody comes in the IFB in my ear and in the Photog's ear and said, hey, is there any way we can get him to stand up? And I'm thinking, oh, God, no, no please, <laughs> no, no. And I don't know if the Photog knew or what, but he goes, 
no, I like the shot better like this because it'll reflect off the glass if we don't because we're in an indoor pool. And so we did it. It was probably just north of awful, but I got through it and I got through that season and I just kind of progressed from there. I became their third guy whenever they needed somebody to anchor. And it just kind of, that was a huge break for me, but it was a lot of twists and turns in getting to that point and, and, and everything from the incredible timing of our general manager to break up my meeting to the fact that there was a chair sitting there and I didn't faint and fall into the pool, which I probably would have done had it not been there. And no, and nobody gets to where they're at without some mentors, some people who are in their corner, whether it be a program director, a general manager, mm-hmm. someone who works at the station that gives you some pointers. Early in your TV career, who was that person or who, who kind of was an individual that maybe you looked to to get some advice or some counsel to uh, kind of improve your craft working in television? Because it's not easy to do, and uh, it's something that takes time and experience, and you also need to kind of also gain that confidence as you go along. Yeah, there, there were, I mean... I mean, I'll even go back further than that early in my radio career as a guy by the name of Tony Roberts, who was a longtime voice in Notre Dame football, was was just, you know, great with me and, and always told me you can do this no matter, you know, how many times people tell you no for a job, you can do this. And Tony was somebody that that was a good friend and and certainly helped me. Um working at WTEM, I work with James Brown and JB was phenomenal. I mean, he is just He's, I tell him he's my role model, my mentor, my friend, and, and I just uh, I, I just idolize the guy. I think he stands for everything that's right, and I, I just love him. And he was always good to me and helped me find an agent and you know, always put in a good word for me and helped me find a job and things like that. And there, there have been so many people at Channel 5. A guy by the name of Ernie Bauer was just amazing. Uh, he, he's the guy who kind of gave me that gig to begin with and worked with me. And you know, I, I remember I... For for whatever reason, I did not stay for the game that night in Philadelphia. I drove home after we did the pregame show. And I remember I got home and there's no cell phones or anything these days. And I got home and my wife said, Ernie called just to tell you you did a good job. And it was like so huge to me that somebody would take the time to do that when I was just driving home the whole way from Philadelphia thinking I was awful. God, that was terrible. They'll never have me back. And um, there have been a, a you know a lot of people a guy by the name of Rennie Knott who worked at Channel 7 was was instrumental in me getting into TV as well and Steve Buckhantz who worked at Channel 5 when I was there was was you know a solid Washington guy still does the the Washington Wizards TV and he was you know here I am new in the business and he would just kind of very accepting of me and I co-anchored some shows with him and he was very helpful and you know I just a lot of people I feel like I'm probably leaving somebody out but there's just so many people that were you know, nice to me and, and reached out at a time when you need it. Cause in this business, you're, you're trying to get a job. You can't, you're trying to find uh, help. You can't. And uh, you know, when somebody tells you hang in there, you can do this. It means everything. Exactly. So now if, if there's a, someone listening around 18 years old, looking to get into the business of either sports, television, or radio, what kind of things would you give, what kind of advice would you give them to help, you know, narrow down what they're looking to do or help get them the best experience to get ahead in this, in this tough business of sports? Yeah. I don't know that I would narrow down what okay. I want to do if I was at that mm-hmm. age. I think I would just kind of scattershot it and I would okay. try to figure out where it's going to go and, because you may think I'm a play-by-play guy, but you mm-hmm. may be an anchor. You may think I'm an anchor. You may be a play-by-play guy. You don't know. There's a, you may be a writer. There's all different kinds of things that you can do, but I, w- I would do anything you can is number one. I think it's, it is very difficult. The, the, the reality is the business is shrinking. The business isn't getting bigger. The business is getting smaller, and that's the tough part of it, and there's a lot of competition for the jobs, and I tell people all the time the hardest thing to do is to get that first job because 
you know, when you're trying to get that first job, you say to somebody, here's what I think I can do. When you get that first job, you can then go to somebody and say, here's what I've done. And it's a big difference. And uh, I never say no, work hard. Don't worry about anything except for work. Take care of family, obviously, if you have to do that. But, you know, I, I always am a believer and, you know, I probably started saying no to things seven or eight years ago. I probably didn't say no for about 25 years, but I just think you, you say no when somebody else says yes, and it's opportunity lost. And I think opportunities are everything in this business. And I think that, um, I don't care where it is. I mean, I did PA for high school basketball games, anywhere there was a microphone, I tried to go. And if that would be my advice to somebody, find out, I don't care if it's a grocery store opening, you know, if there's a microphone there, go do it. Just find a way to get in local television stations, podcasts like this, anything you can do now. And, and these kids are so far advanced compared to where I was. You know, these kids are putting stuff up on the internet of themselves doing sports or, or podcasts that they have. Anything is a good thing. Just work hard, get experience and be ready when the opportunity comes and keep knocking on doors and meeting people. So now we're at uh, around 1997, and uh, you come over here to Detroit at Fox 2 WJBK as an anchor mm-hmm. and as an anchor and the sports director. What was your um, initial goals coming in, knowing that, okay, now I'm going to be um, a prominent figure in a sports organization, especially here in Detroit? Uh, survive. Survive. It was my first inclination, but it was my first time you know, having a number one job and, and being a sports director. And my wife and I while we were very excited about it, didn't know anything about Detroit. We were both coming from DC. We'd both really never lived anywhere, lived anywhere else. And um, I was actively looking for a TV job and had come close on a number of them, had been offered a couple of them, but it didn't feel right. So we didn't take it. And then this one came along and I remember my agent called me and she said, there's a news director in Detroit who saw your tape and liked it because they have these clearing houses where if a news director needs a sports guy, he'll go in and watch 50 tapes in five minutes, just keep going through, just click, 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 click. And I went to my wife and I said, there's a guy in Detroit who likes the tape. And we both kind of looked at each other and I just said, and I didn't know anything yet. I just looked at her and I said, you know, this is it, right? And she kind of looked at me and she goes, yeah, I think it is. So we, we were really excited. Uh, our kids were all small. We were picking up and moving. So, I mean... Is it early 97 or late 97? This is, I came in November 97. November, okay. November 97. And I... You know, I don't think I knew what to expect. I think I just went in ready to work hard and, you know, with the experience of of everything that I've done. And um, I remember I got here and (laughs) the first show I did was, I believe, Thanksgiving Day from the Silver Dome, a Lions pregame show, and everything went south. All the equipment like wasn't working that day. And I'm like, are they testing me? What do we, <laughs> so was, I remember was, I was doing the show with Eric Hippel and Tom Kowalski and we're doing the show and, you know, our earpieces went out so we couldn't hear anybody like the, the monitors went out so we couldn't see anything. So it was just, it was trial by fire and it was, it was just pretty, you know, an incredible thing to have happen to you on your, your first day. But I think it kind of, uh, it bought built me, metal. Yeah, built, built, and, yeah. me a little equity with the guys that I was working with where they're like, this guy can handle this. Cause it was it would have been easy to just kind of say, what are we doing here and why are we doing it? But so I, I think when we came here, I came with the understanding that this was an unbelievable sports market. And probably I thought I knew, but I don't even know if I knew how great it was. You know, I just think when you look at it and you have all four major sports, two major universities that have both football and basketball, a couple others that have basketball that are, that are significant, dip their toe in the pool like Oakland U and UDM. 
it's I, I honestly don't know where you can go in the country where you have a better setup than this. When you look at Chicago, University of Illinois is three hours away. You look at New York, I mean, they have Rutgers, but uh, I mean, that's yeah, technically it's in Jersey. But, you know, I, I just don't know who has it any better than Detroit when it comes to working in sports. It's amazing. Exactly. And now it's always been recognized from time to time, but recently USA Today ranked Detroit number one sports mm-hmm. city. It's got great atmosphere and really something about Detroit is if a team provides a winner, they're like royalty. The athletes are like royalty around mm-hmm. town. They're treated with respect. People love their sports. People love as an avenue of escape. Just sit down, watch a great competition, and there's such a wide array of things to to watch. You can gravitate toward a wide variety of sports, both professional and college, and you can't say that about too many towns. No, and it's. It, I, I think the other thing that jumps out at me about Detroit is just the, the roots that people have. I mean, I, I grew up in D.C., which is a very transient area. I mean, people are in and out with political parties and things like that, and it changes quite often, and I was kind of the, the outlier in that I grew up there and worked in that media, but it was, you look here, and it's people are rooting for the same teams their fathers, grandfathers, and mothers and grandmothers rooted for, and they pass it down to their kids, and it's deep, and it's meaningful, and that's, I think that, that separates Detroit from a lot of cities that, you know, maybe have just sprouted up in the last 20 or 30 years, or you know, are very transient where people are in and out of there. This is this is a city where people live and stay and root for those same teams. And, and I think that has an impact on the, the passion that they have. Okay. So as a sports director, what does the job entail? It's, it's a fancy title for the guy who works the Monday through Friday, or in my case, the Sunday through Thursday shift. That's, that's what it is. And, and theoretically, the other people in the department are under you. But you know, for the most part, we're all into the news director. And, you know, you have direct access to the news director. News director has direct access to the general manager. And I've been lucky enough that I have access to both because I've worked with great people and in, in the time that I've been there. So um, I, I guess it's, like I said, the fancy term for the guy who is the number one guy at that station. Very humble. I appreciate it. That's very, that's very kind. You can well, definitely see that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's true. It's, it's, it's the fancy title for the guy that is your Monday through Friday, or as I've worked since I've been here, like I said, because we have the half hour show on Sunday night, they want me to work Sunday night, which is great for me. Um, and that's what you do. And that's where the title comes. When did the Sunday sports works program debut? It was here when I was here. When I got here, it was, you have a half hour show on Sunday night. Great. And we kind of did some things with that in terms of bringing in the round table guests and, and things along those lines and changing the show a little bit. But that show was here when I got here, as was the Lions pregame show. So I just kind of inherited both those. And then now you're also at the same time as you're working, you're also starting to build your career as a play-by-play voice. Mm-hmm. You were doing uh, play-by-play announcing for the NFL on Fox's regional broadcasts. Mm-hmm. Talk about that experience. And then um, in 2005, becoming the Lions play-by-play voice. Yeah, I had done uh, a lot of play-by-play back in D.C. Um, before I had left there. And I came here and I kind of didn't do it for a couple of years and then I got the opportunity to go to Europe and do NFL Europe. And that's kind of the proving ground for Fox NFL play-by-play people where they'll send you over there, see how you do. And I, um, I went over there and this, this, was my first, this was my first TV game. And I'm doing a game and it's in Berlin. I'll never forget. It was, you know, I'm, I'm somebody who loves having a good spotter. I mean, you know, I, I'll think I see things, but I have a great one in Joe Abramson who works with me on the Lions. And, and so I go over there and we're basically doing the game in a treehouse in Berlin. It felt <laughs> like you had to kind of climb through a window to get into it. And 
this is my first game. So I tell my spotter, I say, look, just after the play, just point to who made the tackle. I said, I'll get the pass. I'll get the catch. I'll get the run. I'll get that. Just point to who made the tackle. So first play of the game happens. And I look over at him and he kind of just shrugs and shakes his head. (laughs) Second play of the game happens. I call it, you know, and I caught called who made the tackle, but I think I was waiting for him to kind of give me the, his belief that it was the same guy. And I look over at him and he kind of shrugs and shakes his head. So at this point, I'm thinking, all right, I'm not going to get much out of this. So third play happens. I look over, he's gone. I look back, he's climbing through the window and leaving and my spotter was gone. So that was, that was, again, it was like, all right, here's the test. So he's gone. So then I am doing the game and this black cloud of death is moving in over Berlin and it's coming right for us. And we can see Sure enough, the lightning starts to break out, the storm begins, and the referee clears the field, sends everybody back to the locker room. Well, they get in our headset, and they say, guys, we're on direct TV. We don't have any commercials. We might have one three-minute package we can play, but you guys have to kill the time. So I'm like, okay, this is great. So we killed about 90 minutes of of downtime. And again, I think in the world of building equity, people back in LA at Fox were watching that, and they're like, wow, they handled that pretty well. That's... You know, I think that scored some points with them. And then I got home. I did two games over there and I got back home and I got a nice email from a guy by the name of Bill Brown who said, we think you did great. Here's some things you can work on. And it was like at the A26 mark of the second quarter, you did this. And it was about three or four of those things. And then at the end of the letter, he said, we think you did well enough to earn a, a an NFL game during the regular season and we'll get back to you. And I did the Lions Saints opener that year. Uh, from New Orleans. And that was kind of the beginning of my five years doing games for Fox. And so you now in 2005, you replace Mark Champion and you become the full-time radio play-by-play voice of the Lions. What was your initial reaction to, okay, now I'm responsible for covering the games for the um, Detroit organization. And how excited were you to, you know, take embark on this new journey? Yeah, it was it was exciting. It was um, it, it was a little different because I was I did not expect the opportunity to come up, and it did. And I had just finished my fifth year. I think I had done ten games for Fox, nine or ten games for Fox the year before, and I was ready to go back for another year with them. And then this opportunity came up, and it really just represented the the chance to not have to travel as much. And when I did travel, you know, because for Fox, I could be doing Arizona, you know, Arizona, San Francisco or something, and you're leaving Thursday night or first thing smoking Friday morning. And with the Lions, I leave Saturday afternoon and I'm back right after the game on Sunday night on the team charter. So it, it, it was a much better fit family wise. And truth is, it was a much better fit career wise in terms of be, if I'm going to be in Detroit, well, then let's be in Detroit and do something like this. You know, a lot of people looked at it when I made that move, like, wow, you're giving up doing games on Fox. I'm like, well, yeah, but I'm doing every week Lions, Detroit, home. It helps you, you know, kind of build who you are in the city and, and, and all those things. And it was just a, it was an amazing opportunity. And, and, you know, for a kid who grew up, you know, dreaming of being in this business, the, the chance to have one of 32 jobs doing radio play by play for an NFL team is, it's incredible. And you, I, I'm blessed. I'm fortunate. I'm privileged. All those things to do it every week. And I never forget that. Dan Miller. Fox 2 Sports Director, radio play-by-play voice for the Detroit Lions. You can follow him on Twitter, at Dan Miller, Fox 2, kind enough to share stories regarding his well over 25-year career in the sports business. And now, you are now the radio play-by-play voice for the Lions, and it's a little bit tough, those early seasons, 2005, 2006. And then, the season happens, 2008, Mm -hmm. where the Lions do not win a game. 
and you had a memorable call at the end of the season. And just share with us, because not only do we as fans recognize that that season had to be tumultuous for the organization, you're going in now week in, week out, doing your preparation, interviewing the players, looking at the Lions as a whole, as an organization, trying to, you know, put forth the best effort you can in an obviously tough situation. The 2008 season when they did not win a game, what was that like? It was brutal for everybody, but I, I never lose sight of the fact that it was a lot harder on the coaches and players that are putting in, you know, players, literal blood and sweat on the field. Um, coaches, 80, 100-hour weeks and getting nothing out of it. Uh, for me and Brandy, you know, we kind of were, could be each other's, you know. Support system. Support system, absolutely. And we just would kind of look at each other and we'd say, look, just call the game. Just call the game. There's a play happening in front of us. Let's just call the game. And it wasn't, look, it's still a great job. You never lose sight of that. But was it fun to call games for a team that went 0-16? No, it wasn't. Winning is fun. Having the fans be happy is fun. That's great. That's what you get into this for. You love it. But that was more, let's do the job. Let's be professional. Let's do the job. Let's get through this. And you went into every game thinking they had a chance to win. That's a great thing about the NFL. That's what makes it special is you have seven days to build up to a game and figure out a way that your team can win. And more often than not, when the game kicks off on Sunday, fans think if their team does X, Y, and Z, they can win. Um, so we figured if they did X, Y, and Z, they could win. They just didn't do X, Y, or Z that year. So it was just one of those things that, that didn't work out. But um, you knew it wasn't forever. Um, you just... Hoped that it was going to be as short as possible, and it ended up being 16. Now, what goes into the preparation being the radio play-by-play voice? What do you got to do during the week to kind of be prepared for Sunday, 1 o'clock for most games, when it's time to go? What encompasses your job, and how do you do your preparations? Well, the, the big difference between, say, doing what I do now for the Lions and what I did for Fox was if you were going to do a game, again, let's just say Arizona-Seattle, something like that, you didn't know a whole lot about those teams. So you were kind of starting, not from zero, but you weren't starting from, you know, a point where you knew a ton about them. So that was a lot of hours of preparation because what you always have to keep in mind is when you're doing one of those broadcasts, you're broadcasting to fans that know everything about that team and have followed that team, you know, every day, not just that year, but forever. So you got to come at it to the point where they're not picking you out as this guy just jumped on band to, on the bandwagon today. Um, so the, that was a lot of preparation. The great thing about something like this is you already know the team. You already know the Lions. Now there's certain things you have to do every week, you know, updating injuries, talking to coaches, how are you going to change things, you know, talking to players, what happened last week, how does that affect this week? But much of your knowledge is gained over time because you're with that team every day, every week, you're learning things. It's not like you're starting from zero, you know, switching games every week. With the opposition, you know, you, you go into it and you have to put together your charts and put together your notes and figure out where they've been, what are they doing, where are they going. But I think the one thing that you do find out very early in, in you know, doing games for one team is it's rarely about the other team. You know, you, you can say it's not like they don't have something to do with it, but more often than not, it's okay, what did the Lions do right or what did they do wrong more than what the other team did wrong or what they did right? It, it comes back to the Lions. So your, your preparation is different in that regard in that you're slanted towards the home team and how it affects them and what they did to affect that given play or that given game. We've enjoyed your work well now over 10 years and 
I can honestly say sitting here, you'll work on the, on the Lions play-by-play. Sometimes when, you, when you're on Twitter, you can get a sense of the fans. And the, the great compliment I can play to you is, I bet you a lot of fans have tuned out Fox 2's, uh, or have tuned out the television and, play, and listened to the radio. When the Lions play on television, a lot of people say, well, it kind of feels like the announcers are biased against us. And I can honestly tell you that listening to you guys really compliments the Lions, and it, it's really been an enjoyable experience the last 10 years. Well, I appreciate that. I mean, we have, we have, Brandy is, I, I think he is as good as they get in the business. He's amazing. He's just really, really good. And I hope people realize that, you know, he just, he sees the field. I've worked with a lot of guys. He seals, sees the field as well as anybody. He not only sees the field, he's able to encapsulate what he just saw and, and let people know what's going on. So he's amazing to have as a broadcast partner. We are both delightfully immature um, we have the same sense of humor. Um, we, we don't keep it serious all the time and, and, and he's fun in that regard and he never leaves you hanging and I never leave him hanging. So it's, um, I love going to work with him. So that makes it fun. And I, and I, and you know what, I, I hope people enjoy it. I've, I've, you know, been very happy with the fact that I've gotten positive feedback from a lot of people and that's great. And it, it, it means a lot. And we sign up in this business to be judged. You can't ever avoid it. It's what, you know, when you get into this, when you get into being a sportscaster on TV or on the radio, people have an option. They're going to listen to you or not listen to you, watch you or not watch you. They're going to judge you. That's part of it. So you can't, you know, get swept away in the negativity or the positivity or things like that. I just try to go out and, and do my job. And I think I've always come at this thing with the realization because it took so much to get here that I've also seen people that lose it very quickly. And so I don't, you know, Things go up and down, so I just really just try to concentrate on doing my job, and I and I love the feedback from people, you know, negative or positive. I mean, it goes, it cuts both ways. If you you're not ready to hear the negative, you're probably in the wrong business. So I I, I take it all, I listen to it all, and I, and I try to you know digest it all and say, okay, what does it mean, and and you know, how does it affect me, and do they have a point? And I go from there. Dan, thank you for sharing your experiences uh, as a play-by-play voice, being the sports director at Fox 2. All right, let's sit back and let's wrap a little bit of sports going on right now locally. You ready? Let's do it. All right. Now, so let's hit the bread and butter. The Detroit Lions upcoming 2015 season, a season that a lot of fans and myself included are ready to get going. We're now going to see how the Lions are going to adjust Post Sue. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a fascinating season to see how the Lions rebuilt that defense, how the new additions on offense and the, the addition of the draft picks are going to affect this team. The 2015 season's almost upon us. They went through the OTAs. The, the Lions season's upcoming, and it's going to be a fascinating 2015 season, I believe. Yeah, it is. And, and you got the headline. It's, it's where does this team go without Sue? I mean, when you lose a great player, people are going to A, assume that you're going to fall off, and B, Watch to see whether or not you fall off. So I, I think, like everybody else, this defense, you know, against the run last year, had one of the all-time great seasons, had one of the best seasons this league has seen since the merger. And that's a great place to start when you're talking about defense. Every team wants to stop the run, and they were able to do that. So how they replace him, you know, how this unit is able to continue to play is, is a big part of who this team's going to be. I think the biggest potential for improvement is the offense. But at the same time, losing a guy like Sue, the biggest potential for a fall-off is defense. Now, that doesn't mean it's definitely going to happen, but that's, I think, one of the questions that has to be answered is what can they do with the guys that they have now, a different-looking team? And I'm excited to see, because when you watch the Lions, you don't get a chance to say, hey, the Lions have a top-five NFL defense. And by all accounts, Terrell Austin is going to be a coach 
potentially a new uh, NFL head coach. He's got that pedigree, and I believe when you looked at it, he came in and turned around that defense rather quickly. So I, want, I really am fascinated to see his system, how it applies going forward without a, a top-notch player, because you're going to have improvements with the linebackers, with Ansa. You're going to you have we have talent on mm-hmm. defense, and I want to see how uh, the system applies when players come in and come in and out. I think that's a that's a great point. I think that's what we're all watching to see. And I do think that Terrell's a guy who will probably get that opportunity at some point. And believe me, if that defense is anywhere near where it was last year, this year, I think that's his opportunity. Success breeds opportunity, and he's going to get that opportunity if that defense continues to play as well as it has. So um, I think that's the question. You know, how much of it is system, and how much of it was dependent upon a great player? That's one thing that we'll find out this year. Um, like you said, the offense has a great chance. I really like the addition of Lance Moore. He knows the system. I believe he's a guy that in his career has been given a lot of opportunity, catches touchdowns because, you know, the, the one and two often get the coverage and he kind of slides in there, picks up, you know, seven, eight touchdowns a season. He's going to be a nice addition. And the Lions have done whatever they can do to surround Stafford with the most support possible. I think this 2015 season is, by all accounts, a make or break year for him. A lot of people are saying, okay, you have the accolades, you have the stats, but now it's time to kind of show us some winning in the playoffs. That's what quarterbacks are judged on. They're judged on winning. And, you know, that's that's the next step. You've been to the playoffs twice, now you got to stay for a while. And I think that, you know, part of that is finding a way to win the division and getting a home game, not having to go on the road to play a playoff game. And, you know, the, there there are young players on this team that can step up, as you alluded to. And, and I, I'm kind of fascinated by Moore as well. I think if anything, he's going to be a tough out for these guys. I think there's some young receivers on this team that have a chance to make the roster. Well, somebody's not going to make it if he does. And I think that he's a guy that coaches are going to be able to depend on. He's a guy that knows the offense. He's a guy that has done it in this league before. So I, I'm, I'm looking forward to watching him play. But at the same time, you know, I, I think there are other guys on this team that have a chance. Corey Fuller can take a big step this year. TJ Jones, on the injured list all year last year, he can take a big step at that position. Jeremy Ross is fighting to have a spot on this team. I mean, I think there are guys behind those three veterans there, two of which are locks to make the team, who would like to think that they have a future with the Lions. Well, part of that future with the Lions is going to be beating out that old guy who's coming in here with a lot of experience and still ability. Okay. Now, you know, the the schedule came out and people were like, whoa. The the placement of the home games and the away games was kind of eye opening. Just the uh, the schedule looked tough when you first seen it. How did it uh, play out in your mind? Well, I, the first thing that jumps out is three out of four on the road to start, three out of four on the road to finish. So that and then a lot of home games in the middle. So that was a little bit different. But you know, I, I'm for the most part, I'm not a schedule guy. I, I think good teams find a way to win ten games, and bad teams find a way to lose ten games. And you know, talent ultimately takes care of whomever you're playing if you're good enough. But I will say this, this this year is a tough schedule, and it's an odd schedule in that you're kind of all over the place with all the national games and Thursdays and two Thursdays and a Sunday night and Monday and things like that. So there's a lot going on with that schedule, but it still comes down to what do you do on Sunday, Thursday, or whenever they're playing Monday? Um, and are you better than your opponent on that day? And I think that that will still be the measuring stick. It's not going to be because they played a lot of games at odd times, and it's not going to be you know, because they played teams that were too good. It's a question of how good you are. I just don't believe, I don't believe teams never heard anybody look back at the end of the year and say, man, we'd have made the playoffs if our schedule had been easier. Play who's in front of you and you got to win. Now, for many seasons, the preseason games were aired on uh, WXYZ Channel 7 and recently announced 
Fox 2 has earned the rights to cover the four preseason games. Talked a little bit about that, acquiring the preseason. What can you share with us and the audience regarding what we can expect from the preseason come August? On, on Fox 2. Uh, yeah, excited about it. And it's, you know, we had the preseason games back in, I don't know, 2002, three and four, something in that range. And, and that was fun and exciting. And um, it was a great opportunity for the station. And then, um, you know, obviously they were at CBS and ABC and, and uh, different stations. So uh, it's great to get it back. It's great for our station. It's It's exciting. I think it, it presents a lot of opportunities outside just the preseason games in terms of player availability that we didn't have before uh, being back on the field for our pregame show, whereas we were outside the stadium before. Um, so there, there's a there's a lot of things that go into it besides just those three games this year, because one of them is a CBS national game. So um, look, it, it's it, we're the Lions station. Doesn't matter what anybody says. I mean, for a couple of years, CBS might have said that. And for a couple of years, ABC might have said that. Um, you know, XYZ may have said that, but the bulk of their games have always been on Fox, okay, since Fox got the rights. So this is the station people watch for the Lions. We're the Lions station, and this is just adding to that, the fact that we get the preseason games. We've always done a pregame show, whether we had the preseason or not, or whether we were officially called the Lions station or not. We've always done a pregame show. Um, it's, it's a big part of who we are and what we do, and it will continue to be. Now we'll just be in a better spot to do it. <laughs> Yeah, congratulations. We're looking. We're all looking forward to it. I think it's going to be something that's going to be that one stop. You know, when it's time to watch the Lions, you know, you go to Fox Two. Yeah, we're excited about it. It's uh, like I said, the, the Lions are a huge part because of Fox relationship with the NFL. It's a huge part of what we do, and it's it it takes a lot of our efforts um, throughout the year. And um, you know, uh, being an NFL guy, I love it. Our staff loves it. We love doing what we do with the team. We love the Sunday morning show, and we're looking forward to just keep on doing what we're doing and now expand a little bit with the preseason games as well. Let's peek in a little bit with the Tigers. I mean, series victory versus Cleveland. Mm -hmm. JV came back, kind of had a a moderate to decent return, um, you know, around 85 to 90 pitches, um, only gave up two runs, which was kind of expected. I I figured he was going to go about six innings, give give up about three runs. He He did well. You know, the bullpen didn't really live up to their their end to the bargain on Saturday, but the weekend marked by two 450-plus yeah. home runs by Miguel Cabrera. Just a great weekend for Miggy and a, a, you know, good, a good solid weekend for the Tigers, who have been scuffling uh, as of late. Yeah, he's, he's amazing, starting with Miggy. He's, he's the best I've seen. I can't, you know, I've been watching baseball, you know, since the early 70s. He's the best I've seen, and, you know, I didn't get to see Mantle when he was at his best, and I didn't get to see... I saw the last couple of years of Aaron and the, and the last couple of years of Mays, but Miggy's the best that I've seen. Um, it's just amazing. And, you know, Verlander, I think that was really what you wanted to see. He went out there and he had a nice outing. Now his story is going to be written throughout the rest of the year and, and where he goes from here. And, um, you know, how does that arm hold up and how does the velocity hold up? And is he, where is he on the JV scale? I mean, I, I don't know that any of us expect him to be, the absolutely dominant MVP Cy Young pitcher that he was at one point, but how close can he get to that? You know, and that may go a long way towards dictating how close this team gets to their ultimate goal, which is a World Series. So, um, it's a team that still has a lot of questions in a division that, that has a bunch of teams that are still hopeful. So, I, I think it's it's going to be interesting to watch where they go from here um, and what they do from here, and if they try to make a couple more moves to improve that bullpen for the you know, second half of the season and, you know, how that starting pitching holds up. 
Um, Simon was terrific in the first half last year, and he wasn't good in the second half last year. He's been really good since he got here. Can he continue that through the whole year? Uh, can Green come back, and can he add to this team? Price I, is going to be Price, and you need Sanchez to be Sanchez. And if Verlander's somewhere close to Verlander, that's one, two, three, pretty good. And if Simon hangs in there, that's one, two, three, four, pretty good. Yeah, imagine sitting here now being uh, general manager Dombrowski. You have probably, arguably, one of the top five starting pitchers in all of baseball. And now you're you're given the job of not only worrying about the team in 2015, but beyond as well. And if you have, you know, Dave Dombrowski has to evaluate and decide, okay, is this team a team that can make the playoffs and contend in the playoffs? Or if not, if that evaluation takes place, do you potentially get a large haul for David Price? Because you have a couple of assets on this team that could potentially, to teams you know, around Major League Baseball, could deliver you a huge haul. Well, and Price and Cespedes would be the two guys that you'd look at. And they're both free agents at the end of the year. I, I Man, I'd be shocked if he dealt one of those as, as, as long as they're in the running. I just don't see that happening because that would be an indication of you know, giving up on this year, depending upon the structure of the trade, giving up on this year and looking ahead to the future. This isn't the team that's built for the future. This is a team that's built for now. And and I I think unless they really fall off, those guys are going to be here. The question is, will either one of them be here to start the season next year? Okay. So it would be a sign to you that, okay, the team is looking, uh, potentially giving up on 2015. Should price be dealt? I think so. I mean, I don't, unless you're getting back Young pitchers, I mean, you're not going to trade him for somebody else's big money guy, I don't think, at this point. So unless you're getting back guys that contribute right away, I don't see how it could be construed as anything but that. But um, we'll wait and see. I don't, that's that, that would not be a move that a Mike Illich team would make to give up on a season when you're right there because you know if you get into the playoffs, anything can happen. Now with the Red Wings, exciting time, exciting transition. Um, they're going to be uh, entering into a, a new arena in a couple years. Now Mike Babcock is off to Toronto, and it's kind of the transition has taken place. The players are a little bit younger. The youth movement is starting to kick in. We got a couple players who are very talented waiting in the wings in the minors, and now you have a new first-time NHL head coach in Jeff Blaschel. It's an exciting time for the Wings. It is, and, and I think a lot of it's going to come down to you know how quickly they progress back to contender status is going to come down to you know can they eke out a couple of healthy seasons from from Zetterberg or Datsuk or Cronwall, and then how quickly do those young guys come along? Not just in the regular season, but how quickly do they come along in the postseason to where they're big time assets there? And you've got a lot of those guys that can be those players, guys we've seen. And then some we haven't. Mantha, who was mentioned in possible trade talks this past weekend. And then Dylan Larkin, who might be coming along. And Polkinen, who we haven't seen a lot of. Guys like that, in addition to the young players that we've seen on the team, how quickly they come along to me dictates how quickly this team can get back to contender status. Yeah, now do you think it's fair that right now it's hockey town? We have an expectation that this team, the Red Wings, wins and competes for the Stanley Cup every year. It's tough to say, well, listen, temper your excitement or temper your attitude regarding the Wings, knowing that it's a process. You, you know, yes, we, we are intended to build to win the Stanley Cup each and every year, but it's a process. But I think that these young players have as much potential as anybody else, and I'm excited to see if Mantha comes up in a few seasons, if Larkin comes up and is a superstar, you're basically built a foundation for success for several seasons to come. Yeah, I'm excited. And, yeah, and we've seen, yeah, and, and I don't know that people necessarily expect them to compete for Stanley Cups. I think people are upset if they don't, but I think there's also a lot of realistic people here who realize that when you watch some of these other teams, they're just not there right now. So I think it's, it's to me, it's people understand 
they're trying to fix the engine while they're still driving the car. And that's not an easy thing to do. And there hasn't been this massive fall off like there have been in other places where teams have been able to go out and get real high draft picks and rebuild with those superstar type players. Um, they're, they're trying to get it done um, while not conceding to the fact that they have to fall in the standings. So it's, it's a pretty, it's a daunting task, but so far they've at least been able to remain relevant. Question is, can you go from relevant back to big time contender status without a fall off? And I think when you look at some of the young players, you get the feeling you know what? They may be able to do that if these guys continue to develop. Yeah, that's exciting to see. I like I like the, the team where it's at right now. Young team, new fresh leadership. Can't wait for the season to start. Now with the Pistons, some some talk regarding, you know, rumblings. I don't know the extent of the, how realistic this is, but it's a fascinating subject to talk about. When you talk about the Pistons, you look at, okay, should they return back to downtown? Would Tom Gores be willing to share an arena with the Red Wings, or would he be willing to invest his own money to build a new stadium in that in that region? Now, when you look at it objectively, it would make no real business sense to you know move from an uh, from the palace which you own outright. Right. It would make no sense. But if he's looking beyond that, if he's looking to really be part of the revitalization of Detroit, my mind goes back and forth. I'm like, wow. If Gores is really interested in getting together with the other business leaders, the great minds in Detroit, and consider, hey, listen, I could put up some of my own money, build a stadium downtown. You, it would be unbelievable to have four state-of-the-art stadiums right near each other, right in that downtown district. It would be unheard of. Yeah, I I don't know where it would make sense to me to build another stadium. Right. I, th- I think you'd have to find a way to share that one down there. It's idealistic, but what a fascinating idea. Because yeah. a lot of people are feeling like, listen— the Pistons will be revitalized when they go back downtown. It's really a fascinating thing to think yeah, about. Yeah, it is. It is. I just don't know. I don't know if it makes sense to have uh, to put up another building. I just I think you'd you'd want to find a way to share that one with the Red Wings and find a way to to make a deal with the Illiches mm-hmm. to get something like that done. Um, uh, same, I guess, questions that you have is how do you leave the Palace when you own it? Because it's going to be a lot harder to just sustain that with concerts than it would be to you know sustain it with you know, upwards of 50 home games a year between preseason, hopefully playoffs and 41 regular season games. So we'll have to wait and see what happens. You know, is it possible they go down there and play a partial schedule, play 10 games down there? Maybe. I don't know. Um, I I think there's been a lot of speculation, but not a lot uh, from Gores as to what he's thinking and how he wants to approach it. And I think he's a smart guy and I think he's going to figure this thing out and do what's best for this team. And look, they, they can make things happen at the palace. We've seen that. All you got to do is win. You win, people are going to come out there. It's not too far. It's not a problem. It's just the product has been the problem. And, you know, I'm I'm a Van Gundy fan, and I think he's going to figure out a way to get some things done. And I think once he does that, that place is going to be hopping again. And if it ends up that they go back downtown, I think that'd be great. I'm all for it. I'm, 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 you know, I'm behind that. If that's what they want to do, I think it would be exciting. But if they stay at the Palace too, what I'd say is we've seen that place rock and it will do it again if that team gives people a reason to do it. Dan Miller giving us his time, sharing great insights. Uh, you can tell it's obvious Dan watches and covers a lot of sports, has a lot of great opinions. You can follow him at Twitter at Dan Miller Fox 2 Before we get you out of here, I want to get your your opinion on a couple of things. Mm -hmm. Do you listen much to sports radio around town these days? I do, yeah. I mean, it's uh, depending upon, you know, where I am in the car, getting ready for work, whatever. I'll flip it on to see what's happening. A lot of people, you know, when we talk about sports radio, there's a lot of sports media critics. But the kind of the overall arching, I think, thoughts are, 
should a sports radio station be all sports talk or to satisfy, you know, the hardcore sports fans or, you know, you have some who rumble and grumble when, you know, there's a topic regarding like, hey, you know, what went on in your life or some, some, some thoughts or some topics regarding, you know, things around town or things that are happening in your life presented in an entertaining way. You kind of have two schools of thoughts on listenership. You got those who are like, no, please break down the lions and please don't tell me about what's going on, you know, with the Caitlyn Jenner situation or other national breaking news, things like that. What say you? What, do you, what, what are your kind of thoughts about sports radio in general and, and topical things with, uh, uh, with hosts? I am not a guy who believes that you do a radio station talking only about sports because I yeah. don't think that's realistic as to the way that we converse. And by we, I mean, for the most part, men, that's your dominant audience. And it's not to say that women don't listen because they do. But when, when we go out, we don't just talk about sports. And I think, you know, some people hate the term, but I do think in some ways it is. And I felt like this when I worked in the medium, it's, it's guy talk radio and it is, it's men's health radio. It's, you know, what, what do guys talk about and have fun? And, and bottom line is this, it is about being entertaining and it's about being compelling. So I think a lot of times if people have a problem with it, it's because not that what they're talking about isn't sports, but maybe they think what they're talking about is something they don't care about, is stupid or whatever. The job is to be compelling, to be smart, to be somebody that, and let me say this, it's really hard. Oh, yeah, of course. It's really hard. It's not an easy job. I mean, I've done it and I can tell you it's not easy. It's taxing and it's it's... It's difficult to come up with those topics to be relevant, compelling, entertaining, all those things. So I have a lot of respect for the guys that do it. But, you know, if your question is simply, do I think it should be all sports versus, you know, whatever happens to be the hot topic with sports being the dominant thing? I think it's the latter. I really think it's about talking about the things that are hot, talking about what we be. This thing originated with the idea that guys are sitting on bar stools drinking a beer talking. That's what, that's really where the idea came from. And those guys don't just talk about sports. Other people may have different ideas. That's mine. Okay. And then uh, the other aspect of radio that people kind of talk about is caller driven versus kind of maybe guests and national, national guests and insight from people maybe in studio. Um, A guy like Jim Rome, he said, listen, I'm going to, I'm not willing to base my career on um, callers and things like that. So he was, his attitude, his shtick was more of me, less of the callers, better for me. But I personally enjoy listening to callers call up and sometimes they're a little bit, you know, passionate and a little bit, you know, not as objective, but I enjoy that. Just your thoughts about, you know, caller driven radio versus kind of maybe more host driven and uh, guest driven, insight driven. I think, I think number one, your, your host has to drive it. Your, my opinion. Yep. That's right. And and, and I'm basing this on having done it years ago and listening to it and things like that. To me, the host has to be compelling. The host has to be interesting. The host has to be somebody that you enjoy listening to. If they're not, you can't mask that that, with phone calls. That just doesn't work. It doesn't, I mean, to me, ultimately that guy's got to have some talent. And and like I said, I have a lot of respect for the guys that do it because it's not easy, but they have to have the talent to draw the audience in. You're still the straw that stirs the drink. Just because you're going to call after call after call doesn't mean that they're the product. You're still the product, the the guy that hosts it. And that's why I have a, the guys that are really good at it, kudos you know, kudos to them because it's not easy. And I, I, I you know, I've, I've worked with some of them. I've listened to some of them. And I think that the, the guys that, that can knock it out of the park are 
you know, very, very good, very, very gifted. And, but I think at the end of the day, when you go home and you reflect upon your time in the car, listening to sports radio, you're not reflecting upon a caller. You're reflecting upon the host. It's the host. It's that guy or gal who pulled you in, gave you something to think about. And, and to me, you know, a good radio talk show host is kind of like a good columnist. They, they see things differently. They're not black and white. They see shades of gray and they can make you think of, uh, of different things and, and, you know, appreciate different opinions. It's like, you know, when I worked in sports radio in DC, I was on after Kornheiser. Oh, nice. and I would, I would drive to work thinking that I had my notes for the show and my thoughts for the day and I was ready to go. And I would listen to Tony and I was like, oh my God, my stuff's awful. I mean, we're talking about essentially a lot of times the same topics. And he would just blow me away with his insight and, and his ability to pick up on nuance and things like that. And I felt like a caveman going in there with the stuff that I was going to do. So I, I just, I have a lot of respect for the guys that do it well and the guys that have great insight into it. Dan, I thank you so much for giving us your time. You came in here. You've, re- you've responded to my request for the interview. I really appreciate it. Now, we get all our guests out of here on this, and it just kind of gives us a little bit of insight into your passion with sports. And, uh, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting question that I picked up, and I've asked all the guests that I've interviewed. So you got four tickets. Mm. Uh, you can go and watch any sporting event, any point in time, any venue, and you can take three people, dead or alive. What sporting event, oh, what venue man. would you go to? And who would you take? Oh, that's great. And I won't take credit for the question while you think, because I got it from a book, um, Mad, Dog, uh, Mad Dog in New York, came up with a book, great, uh, 100 Greatest Sports Debates, and I stifled through. I'm like, wow, this is a great question. So I picked, there, there, it's a great book. Um, it's called uh, Mad Dog Chris Russo, I believe. Yeah. It's called 100 Greatest Sports Debates. It's a great, fascinating book. And it, and, and it has a lot of sports debates. And the question there is just... It, I laid it out just like that, and I took it. And I'm like, what a great question to ask people. Yeah. So everyone I've asked has been like, wow, you know, that's a really interesting question. So you thought about it. All right, who would you take and where would you go? Yeah, I think, I, you know, here's what I'll do. Because the easy <laughs> answer for me would be I would take a Lions Super Bowl. But let's just say I'm working for that, and we'll take that one off the table. The, the easy one would be Lions Super Bowl. But I would say probably uh, give me tickets to the Masters, something like that. And I would take my dad and my grandfather, both of whom have passed, and then um, probably come down to one of those brothers I would tell you about, but I'm not going to tell you which one because I'd have to leave out the other two. So I, so I, would, I, would, uh, I would take one of them with me. But um, probably I love the Masters. I, I've always loved it. I, I mark off that on my calendar every year, and I sit and watch it, and it just it, it Have you ever been to, to Augusta National? You know, I, I didn't. I worked for a, a company that used to do a lot of coverage there, and I always had the opportunity to either go or I could stay back and get a lot of overtime, and I always chose the money. So <laughs> I regret that in some ways now, but uh, I, I still love watching it on TV, and I probably, because it is my favorite sporting event versus saying like Final Four or something like that. So if it can't be a Lions Super Bowl, I would probably say the Masters and just be able to share that time with uh, my dad who wasn't even a sports fan, but I'd take the opportunity to be with him and my grandfather who loved golf and then just, you know, a good friend. And I think we'd have a great time. Dan Miller, thank you very much. Chatting one-on-one with the doc. We greatly appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks, man. I appreciate that.